0: I want to just take a second and remember that, that the church has always been God's plan. God always wanted to have his presence live inside of each and every human being. I uh, have recently been watching a documentary, Life on Our Planet, uh, with the boys. And it's, it's really neat to kind of see like how life emerged and all these different things that scientists know. But of course, what scientists can't tell you and what science doesn't really try to address is the special nature of the relationship of human beings with creation and human beings with God and what makes human beings different among all other creatures. And that's really where scripture comes in. I I, I always try to encourage people to say like, hey, don't don't fight about like what science says versus what the Bible says, because the Bible's not trying to be a science book. What the Bible is trying to do is to tell you about the relationship that God has with human beings and how that relationship impacts everything we see in the world around us. Something science is never going to be able to try to communicate to you, just like scripture isn't written to be a science textbook to tell you, okay, here, this or that formula adds up to this or that. The writers of scripture, that's not their job. That's not what they're interested in. They're interested in talking to you about how God reveals himself to human beings. And so we know from the beginning that we looked at Genesis to Revelation that God's plan is to reveal who he is to the universe through human beings living on the earth. Among the creatures of the earth and all the beauties of creation that we see around us, God says it's human beings who are going to reveal who I am, how I love The kind of relationship I want to have with all living things and the kingdom that I want to bring into reality is going to happen through human beings. And so we have seen how complicated that got. Through as we've gone through the Bible, we've seen from the beginning that human beings, of course, decided, well, I'm not sure God's plan is really the best plan. I might be able to come up with a better plan. And then there's all kinds of chaos and confusion that comes out of that. The world isn't what it's supposed to be. Things don't go the way they're supposed to go because human beings say, eh, my plan might be better than your plan, God. But then eventually we have this great uh, reintroducing of God's plan that happens through Jesus that as God once entered into the world by breathing his life and his spirit into Adam and Eve, into the beginning of human beings in this world, he now reintroduces his spirit and his presence again, and it's through the man Jesus, the human being Jesus, who comes and lives his life as one of us, the fullness of the presence of God in human flesh, introducing, reintroducing God's kingdom into the world. And as we heard last week, Daniel and other writers scriptures promise us it is a kingdom that will not end and a kingdom that cannot be destroyed, a kingdom that cannot be uh, thwarted by other earthly kingdoms because even if you kill it, the kingdom will still live. And we know that because of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and ascension and pouring out of his spirit. So that's all seen for us in scripture and that's what Revelation is really about. Now, it's important for us to think a little bit about Revelation in terms of the context that it was written. Uh, As I kind of said to you a couple weeks ago, writer of Revelation, we should think of as somebody known as the prophet John. It's probably not the same John, the son of Zebedee, who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st and 2nd and 3rd John because when we look at the Greek, they are wildly different books written in wildly different ways. Even if you read in English, (laughs) you will notice they sound a lot different from each other. And that makes sense because there were obviously tons of people named John Johannan in the first century. So it wouldn't be a surprise that there are multiple church leaders. He's probably writing towards the end of the first century under the reign of the Emperor Domitian. In the early Christian movement, there were two primary crises that happened early for the Christians. First, as we talked about a little bit, Nero. Nero, crazy emperor, one of the first times in the history of Rome. Caligula wasn't great. But Nero was the one that everybody said, this whole thing might collapse because he's insane and he's doing a lot of crazy things. And one of the things that he did was to blame fires and unrest that happened in Rome on Christians and then proceed to slaughter Christians on a whole scale level. Paul and Peter died in the persecutions under Nero. That thinking and that event is reflected in Revelation. Something similar is happening under the emperor Domitian in around 90 AD, which is probably when Revelation was written. And so the writer of Revelation is saying everything that we believe is coming down to how we will be faithful in this moment where the world around us is turning against us, where the world around us is saying you can't be faithful anymore or you're going to suffer consequences and you're going to have to lay down your lives. So Christians in the early centuries were good citizens. They were people you'd want to be around, but there were three main ways that they would conflict with the empire around them. So if you were faithful to God's kingdom and who it is that King Jesus is and what he wants for his people, there were basically three ways that you would come into conflict with the Roman Empire. One, Christians refused to worship other gods other than the one true God who had revealed himself in Jesus. So obviously, Greeks, Romans... All the cultures around Christianity, except for uh, Judaism, of course, worship multiple gods, believed in multiple gods. So if we see one of the early things about Christians that people said is that they were atheists because they only believed in one God, they didn't believe in a whole bunch of different gods. So that was a conflict they ran into. To go along with that, Christians refused to worship the emperor, and it was very prominent in those days to worship the emperor as God. One of the primary historical artifacts we have of the emperor Domitian was his insistence that city-states and citizens would worship him as God. And it's on the coins, it's on the documents. He considered himself to be divine, and everyone had to respect that and honor that, and Christians didn't, which is where the primary conflict happened between Domitians and Christians. Thirdly, Christians defied social conventions in several areas. Slavery—they saw slaves as equal before the eyes of the Lord. Marriage—they saw women as equals in a way that Roman society didn't. Uh, they valued the lives of children in ways that the society around them didn't. They didn't engage in violence in the way that the society around them did. They saw sexual relationships differently. So those social convention defying also made ways for. Christians to come into conflict. And John speaks to Christians in the middle of these conflicts. He speaks to Christians to say, it's hard to be faithful in the society you live in because of the person who's leading that society, the person that everyone around you worships in Domitian, and the way that the world around you looks. So I want to encourage you to be faithful because you can rely on Jesus to be there for you. And worshiping Jesus the King and following Jesus the King and Jesus the Savior who has come and will come again is always going to be worth it. And for the writer of the, the book of Revelation, he's very clear, this project is only going to survive. The project begun in the manger and the coming of Jesus is only going to continue. His reign is only going to increase when the people who've been bought by his blood are faithful to live in obedience to his call and his word. So those are the kind of ideas we need to think about when we look at the Revelation. How are we faithful to him in the middle of the earthly kingdom we live in? No matter what earthly kings say, are we faithful to say yes to King Jesus? No matter what society around us teaches, are we faithful to follow his commands and live in obedience to him? How are we living in a posture of submission to King Jesus in every aspect of our lives? That's what we'll look at. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 as we start off today. Revelation 5, 1 through 5. So this is John and his vision. He's got this vision going on. And in the middle of this vision, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So here we have a picture of the scroll-opening lion. That's the first image we have here. Now, very important to know, if you're looking at the book of Revelation, Revelation starts off in chapter 1, Uh, It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant, what must soon take place. Over the years, it has been difficult for Christians to keep track of verse 1 of Revelation chapter 1 when they look at Revelation. Because John tells you two things. This book is meant to reveal to you Jesus, and it's meant to tell you things that are just about to happen. So, of course, Christians over the years have said, this book is about the end times that are going to happen in my time period not the time period that john was talking about (laughs) which of course is not what john says here now john is going to talk about end of the world kind of things but really it only happens in a couple of chapters in revelation at the very end where john talks about heaven and earth coming together at the end of all things the majority of Revelation is John speaking to the Christians that he is reaching, that he's writing letters to, as we see in the first few chapters, about things that are happening in their day and things that have happened just before their day, things that have led up to the moment that they live in, and how their faithfulness is going to be reflected in what's unfolding before their very eyes. Christians have forgot about that. The other thing that Christians have sometimes forget about is that this whole book, the purpose of this book, is to reveal to us Jesus. Revelation? Revelation of what? It's a revelation of Jesus. Everything about this book is meant to reveal who Jesus is and the life that he wants us to experience in him. And unfortunately, we've oftentimes left track of that. And I would say when we look at the life of Jesus, there are five primary ways that Jesus has revealed himself to us. First, the incarnation. That's what we're celebrating in Christmas season. Jesus coming as a little baby, living his life among us. Two, the crucifixion. Jesus' death and taking on sin and death and the punishment of sin. Three, his resurrection, his defeat of sin and death through the resurrection. Four, his ascension into heaven. Jesus goes into heaven and promises his Holy Spirit and sends that Holy Spirit. So when Jesus goes into heaven, he says, I am sending my very presence to live inside each of you through the Holy Spirit. We see that at Pentecost. That's all in in four. And then five, Jesus someday is going to come back again physically on the earth. Jesus is going to come and reveal himself again to us in the second coming so those are the five ways that scripture talks about jesus being revealed and the whole purpose of scripture is to reveal to us that jesus gives us the word of his coming into this earth so john spends time talking to the early churches in asia telling them about uh, this jesus and what he's all about his love and his presence now when i um I I enjoy the writings of C.S. Lewis, and we recently celebrated the 60th anniversary of his passing. C.S. Lewis actually passed away on the same day that John F. Kennedy Jr. was shot. So it kind of went underlooked in the headlines. I don't know why. But um, he he passed away. Now, he had an immense influence on the church, wrote a lot of great books. And one of the the thoughts that C.S. Lewis had that has always struck me is uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book Paralandra, he imagines. Uh, that God is doing the Garden of Eden again in another planet, which in his day they didn't know what was going on in Venus, so he sets it up as Venus. But it's another planet where God is setting up a Garden of Eden. And there in in this Garden of Eden, of course, there are these creatures that God has called into relationship with himself. There's a, a man and a woman, so to speak, that God has brought into relationship with himself. And God looks at this situation, and he's trying to accomplish his means of showing love and revealing himself to them. And in that moment... Uh, there's a question of whether or not they're going to fall. And C.S. Lewis says in that moment, talking in his book, he says, if they fall, it's going to be twice as bad as the fall that happened on Earth. It's going to be another level of fall and evil that's introduced into the universe. And then what what has always blown my mind is that C.S. Lewis says, if they fell, if it was twice as bad a fall, there would be twice as amazing a redemption. So he says, if redemption of Earth is a square... Redemption of this next planet would be a cube. It would be to the next level. Now, I, that's always been something I've loved to think about. And I introduce it here to, to have it in the back of our minds as we see this scene unfold before us in heaven. Because we, the scene is John is before heaven. He's seen the scene before the throne of God. It's this amazing scene where there's these four wild creatures and then there's all these elders and saints before God's throne, and every time the creatures sing to God, the elders and saints fall and cast their crowns before the throne, and they sing, and then John tells us, well, the creatures are always singing, so every moment of their existence, these people in heaven are constantly falling before the throne of God. They're constantly singing about the greatness of God and his love for them and the redemption that he's purchased from all humankind, and in this moment he then sees the scroll that nobody has the answers for and uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit in this passage of like king arthur and the sword in the stone right nobody can pull the sword out of the stone except the one who's been chosen nobody's going to be able to lingate a except the one who can pull the sword out of the stone and even bigger sense john's got that sense here no one is worthy to open the scroll all the secrets to all of creation the redemption that we need the way to make life what it's supposed to be is contained in the scroll No one is worthy to open it. No one has the answers. For years and years, society has tried to come up with what's going to make sense of the life that we live on this earth, with death and the suffering that it produces, with the innocent that pass away, and how does that make sense with uh, all the the goodness that is in the world that is foiled by evil human beings that get in the way of that and, and produce suffering. The world's trying to make sense of all this, and all the answers are in the scroll, and no one's able to open it. No one can bring the redemption that's needed from the fall that has happened in human beings and the desire that God has to reveal himself through human beings somebody's got to open the scroll. And then all of a sudden we see introduced in the scene, the line of Judah, the root of David, he is worthy to open the scroll. There are so many moments in Revelation where you've got to have that like, ooh, feeling down, go down your back. Uh, one of the first ones that comes up is Jesus shows up in chapter 1, and he says, I was dead, but now I'm alive again, and I've got the keys to death and hell. If I'm worried about my future, I know who's got the keys. I know who's got my future in his hands. And Jesus says, no matter what the world has to throw at you, I have already beaten it. I have the victory. Here's the proof. Moment of chills down your back. This is another, it's supposed to be another one of those moments. It's the one who's been promised. Uh, the Old Testament, all the prophecies, everything we looked at to the point of this point in Scripture is answered in this lion, this root of David, who's come. You understand the idea of a root of David uh, that's that idea that this this one that God called that said, I want to have a relationship with God. My heart is going to be after him. This is the very root of that relationship God wanted to have that we see in, Jesus, in David. We know David messed up. We know David didn't do everything right. This one's even better than that. He's the root of that heart that God wants every person to have, and he's revealed in this lion who's come from the tribe of Judah. Now, if you know anything about Judah, you know Judah also not a perfect person. Judah, a person who who, uh, didn't do everything he was supposed to do, but God promised he was going to bless the whole world through Judah. That's the one we see here, this lion who's come. And again, so I want to back up for a second. Look at this passage. Think about that mind-blowing idea I gave you from C.S. Lewis, uh, that this idea that no matter what the cost of redemption has to be, this person will pay it. No matter what needs to happen for human beings to be made right with God, this person will do it. Uh, incredibly important for us to remember when we look at Christmas, this idea that God wants to have relationship with human beings. He wants to have a relationship with you, he wants to have a relationship with you, with every single one of us. God wants to have a relationship with us we're messed up. We can't, we can't do it. We, we want to do things right, and we just find that we can't do it. We've got this inward bent inside of us away from God, and what's the way to fix it? The problem is when we, when we find that inward bent, we do things that we shouldn't do. We make life for ourselves that shouldn't be that way. We hurt our family and our friends, and things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There's brokenness inside of me, and who is going to deal with that? And God looks at that and says, well, I can't just hand wave it away because I've created these creatures to be my presence in this world. They're not robots, they're not animals, There's something different, something meant for much more than that. So I can't just hand-wave it away and say, Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm Santa Claus and and everything's going to be fine. I'll give you gifts no matter whether you're naughty or nice. Eventually they'll show up under the tree. No, I want to restore all the brokenness inside of you and make you whole. So in order for that to happen, human beings aren't going to be able to produce it. We don't have the ability. We're not strong enough. No one can open the scroll. No one is worthy. So God himself has to become a human being. Because it's a human problem that needs a human solution that no human being can provide. Only God can do it, so God's going to become a human being. The redemption that will cost everything, that will involve every single aspect of himself, God is going to do, and he reveals it by showing up as the root of David, as the line of the tribe of Judah, who has the ability to open these scrolls. So it's, a, it's an amazing moment. John reveals it to us here, and we have to keep that in mind. As we think about this book and this passage. Let's keep reading, verses six through ten. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth." Now, do you see the quick transition that John gives us here? He says, Well, you wonder who can open the scroll? It's the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And everybody's like, A lion. I get it. Lions are super powerful. They're actually super lazy, but anyway, they seem to be super powerful. They look amazing. If one was chasing you, you would not find it lazy, right? You know how powerful a lion is, the apex predator of of the area of the world that John is is speaking of here. No one can compete with the lion and what it's able to offer, and so John says, yes, the lion's worthy to open the scroll, and so I looked at the lion, and he was a lamb. (laughs) <laughs> that, that should jar you a little bit. And it's a recurring theme that John brings us to in Revelation. As these scrolls are open, we see some terrible things happen in the world. And at one point, uh, people who are experiencing the terrible things, they asked the mountains to fall on them. And they said, who will save us from the wrath of the Lamb? And that should again be a moment where we're struck by Revelation. Because who has ever been afraid of the anger of a Lamb? Right. When's the last time you were like, man, I hope that lamb doesn't beat my butt like that. That is uh, if you are afraid of a lamb, I'm sorry, you need to hit the gym a little bit because they're very they're very fluffy and cute. You should not be afraid of a lamb. And again, it reminds us in that passage that when we see terrible things happen in the world around us, we can't make sense of the world around us. The answer is found in the lamb who laid down his life for us. And Jesus, who died on our behalf to purchase for himself a people from all tribes, nations, and language, languages. Jesus, who wants a family made out of all human beings on earth. He's done what it takes to make things right between us and God. So when they cry from the mountains to cover them, when they say, save us from the wrath of the lamb we're meant to look at this passage and say save us from the wrath of the one who wants to save us every purpose of his life is to save us and to bring into right relationship with god again at the end of revelation we have this great scene of this army that's coming on the earth and this army that's going to come and fight against all evil and all those who are resistant to god and this this leader of the army shows up he's riding on his horse and his robe is dipped in blood and it's very clear in the passage the blood is his own blood that he shed on behalf of the earth. And when he shows up to fight, he shows up with a sword coming out of his mouth because the sword that he offers us is his word. And his word and his greatest command is love one another as I have loved you. If you want to be part of my kingdom, every moment of your life is going to be a a moment of self-sacrificial love and pouring yourself out to others. This is the kingdom that cannot be destroyed, that will defeat all evil and all pain and all suffering. You'll know it through this lamb who was slain. And that's who John sees as the lion. You want to know who's the lion, who's the leader, who's the one who can pull the, stone, uh, the sword from the stone. You want to know the one who's the promised one we've all been waiting for. It's the lamb who was slain on our behalf. My greatest pet peeve about the book of Revelation is when people say, Oh, well, I read Revelation, and I know Jesus, when he shows up the next time, he's going to be different. He's, gonna, he's not going to be messing around. He's going to take you out to the woodshed next time he comes around. Because it's completely opposite from Revelation. Yes, absolutely. There is, there is a judgment. There is a reckoning to come. But it's a reckoning that comes from the hand of the Lamb who was slain to bring you into the presence of God. To purchase for himself a people. Uh, I, this is the kingdom that he wants to bring. It is a kingdom of laying down your life for each other sorry young people I'm about to make you cringe um, there <laughs> when I when I am active on social media and that's where I try to like engage in baseball communities have a lot of great chances to witness to people I will notice that that sometimes the young folks that are like 20 30 years younger than me I guess I shouldn't say 30 they'd be 10 years old uh, 20 years old 20 years younger than me or so they will use this phrase when they see someone doing something on someone else's behalf when they see someone, who is, is doing something to uh, just really show just a heroic nature of love, they will say something like, I see you, king. Something like that. I just made you all cringe, all right? I promise I never use it. That's the first time I've ever said it. But they'll describe themselves as kings and queens. <laughs> yeah, it was a rough one. I hope you can survive. I didn't see anybody barf yet. But, uh, but that's that's what I will see. It's that it, but it is a reflection of this idea that, Man, the kind of royalty I want, the kind of kings and queens I want in my life is somebody who's willing to put the needs of others above themselves. Somebody who's willing to do something you'd never expect to show that kind of love. That is this kingdom that Jesus brings. The kingdom of priests he wants to establish on the world, the kings and queens that we need, are those who are willing to show that kind of love and live into the reality of this lamb slain on our behalf. This is the kingdom he's establishing. This is the kingdom you're going to be part of forever when Jesus shows up again, or if I die before he shows up again, this is the kingdom I'm meant to be a part of. This is the scene that unfolds before us before heaven. Let's keep reading. Uh, Verses eleven through fourteen. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. So um, I was trying to do some searching for images for the PowerPoint, because I like to give you just some images to think about as you hear these scenes. And I desperately searched for an image that reflects this passage, and I couldn't find it. Because in verse 13 it says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying this word of praise to the Lamb. And I searched for pictures of saints and squids worshipping, and I couldn't find any. (laughs) I couldn't even find a picture of, like, human beings and penguins worshipping. And penguins are cute. You'd think someone would paint them in there, right? But this passage... I can't find it. Somebody's got to make the painting. Uh, Maybe Steph can draw it back there for us. She does a great job. Where you have every creature in heaven, every creature that's ever existed is here praising the Lamb. All the creatures are here. This is the point of this whole enterprise of life existing on this earth, of us being the exact right distance from the sun to support life, of all the cataclysmic events that have led to this moment of Jesus coming, and every creature that's existed on the earth is here saying, this is what it's been all about. This lamb who was slain on our behalf, this is the point of existence. The only thing that makes sense of life and death, of suffering and joy and love as we know it, in this world, is found in the eyes of this Lamb. In the presence of this one who was slain on our behalf to purchase for a people for himself from every tribe, language, nation, and people, he's here. This is what it's all been about. All the creatures know it, and they're here praising this Lamb. They're here living into this. now. I want to make this practical for you as we think about Christmas and we think about who Jesus is and is coming on our behalf. Uh, This is the one who was born in the manger. This is the one who was born to the poorest of the poor, uh, who was born into a situation that is hard to imagine of a a girl who's not married and engaged and then she has to say, hey, I'm pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And somehow God chose the perfect dad for the situation who experiences a dream and says, I buy it. I'm a, I know it's true. I know that God is here and he has given you this child and I'm going to raise him as my own. And Jesus' whole life is impacted by this father who's obedient and gives uh, out of self-sacrificial love every moment of his life. And this, this uh, mother who just a young girl in Nazareth, here's the angel shows up. And unlike anybody else, pretty much, who's encountered an angel throughout Scripture, when the angel tells her something impossible, she says, may it be to me, as the Lord has said. And her son's life is defined by that obedience that she shows. Jesus, who comes in the manger, he is the one who fulfills this promise of being faithful and obedient to God, no matter what the situation. The posture of Jesus' life is a constant posture of yes to the Father, And the will of the Father be accomplished in him through the Holy Spirit. And God says, "That's what it's all about. That's the kingdom that I want to bring. That in your life, in your heart, in your mind, your posture is one of always yes to what I want." So this past week, I was watching some some services of pastor friends of mine, and I noticed a couple of them uh, asked their congregation to do centering centering breaths, and I'm never going to do that. nothing against them. Centering breaths are great meditation. I'm never going to be able to do that. Just it just isn't something that my stuffy Anglo-Saxon self can do. But what I can do and what I want to ask you to do today is to think about your mental posture. Your the way that your mind is. And it's I've realized that this is something I have to Chelsea and I have to have our kids understand. How to live into this mindset of of what your dad and mom ask you to do is something that you're going to first reaction is to say yes, because you trust them, because you know that what they have for you is best. It is a tough thing to learn, and it's okay for it to be tough as parents look at their children and say, hey, this is something you need to wear, uh, that, um, that this, it's okay for it to be tough because that's how you learn to be an independent person and in your own self is learning how to, how to make those good decisions on your own. So it's okay to question and figure that out. And some of us, Elliot, question a little more than others. <laughs> and we have to work on that together. It's okay. It's okay for that to happen. And as I look and I see that happen in my children, I realize that's what needs to happen in my life. More and more, I need to have a constant posture of trust to say yes to Jesus, the one who was slain on my behalf, the one who offered his life for me, that my posture inside my mind, inside my heart, my very being needs to be one of saying yes to him because that's what's happening. Every moment of existence before the throne of God for all time is just a bunch of people saying yes, whatever it is you want, I know it's worth it. Whatever it is, the direction you have me to go, I know it's worth going because you offered your life for me. Everything that you have, you gave to me. So I offer everything I have to you knowing I can trust you. So my question for you today, is that your posture inside of you, in your mind, in your heart? Are you working on developing that tenderness, that yesness, ness that let, let it be as you have said? Let it be to me as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. Is that the posture of your life? Because that is the kingdom that Jesus, the one who was slain on our behalf, wants to bring.